Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please, to the book of Zephaniah. The book of Zephaniah. If you did not bring a Bible with you, there is a <clears throat> paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. Uh, you can grab that Bible and open to page... 460, 460. Uh, before we get into this, just a couple of things I wanted to mention. Um, mark your calendars for October 27. That's a Sunday. On that evening, we are going to have our second annual joint service with our brothers and sisters from Westminster and at City Hope. So we did this last year. I think it was the first week of December last year, but uh, this place was packed out. I think we had about 350 people here, and it was just a very special event. Westminster is the church that planted this church, and we are the church that planted City Hope. And so we have a lot in common. It's good for us to get together and worship, and that will happen. October 27, uh, 6.30, no life group meetings that night, so everybody can be here for the joint service. Uh, the other date you want to put on your calendar is November 9th. That's a Saturday. <clears throat> and that's when we're going to hold our annual conference on the dangers of pornography. In the past, this conference has been called Porn Kills. We've renamed it Pornified. Pornified. So it's the same thing as Porn Kills. Uh, we've changed it a little bit this year. Rather than a Friday night Saturday morning thing. We're just going to do it all day Saturday. So it's like 9 a.m. till 4 p.m. Um, but I highly recommend that you come to this conference, whether you have an issue with pornography or not. Uh, there's going to be a session for parents who are looking to uh, know how to guide their children with this threat and this temptation. It's a free conference. Tell your friends, um, make time to come. Very informative, very helpful. November 9th on Saturday. We do have some flyers at the Welcome Center, so you can grab a couple of those and pass them out. Um, we are continuing here through our sermon series called Route 66, as you know. Uh, we are seeking by God's grace to move through the entire Bible. We started in the book of Genesis. We're working toward Revelation. One sermon per Bible book. Uh, today we reach this book called Zephaniah, not Zechariah. Uh, that's a different minor prophet. This is Zephaniah. We are in the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets. These are probably the books that are most easily overlooked in our scriptures. Um, but we want to be faithful to our task here and cover every book of the Bible. So today it's Zephaniah. Now Zephaniah is the last of the prophets to preach before the exile. Uh, you might remember that I've mentioned that both Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms, were exiled, Israel to Assyria, Judah to Babylon, and many of the prophets preached to Israel and Judah before that exile happened. Some preached during the exile, others preached after the exile. So you see on the right side of the screen, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, those are all post-exilic prophets, those who preached after the exile, and those are the last three minor prophets that we have yet to cover. Once we get through those three, we'll be done with the Old Testament, and we'll move on to the New. Zephaniah is the last of 
the pre-exilic prophets, and so Zephaniah's name is listed here. And um, one thing that you'll notice if you know anything about the book of Zephaniah is that there's really not a lot new in this book. Um, I, I wonder if Zephaniah is placed here at the end of all of these other pre-exilic prophets as kind of just a summary of everything that's come before because we don't really get a whole lot that is new here. But there is, I think, a very contemporary application that comes out of this book that um, I think you might be able to identify with. Uh, many of you have seen <clears throat> this picture, poster, bumper sticker, that's normally where, where I see it, on the backs of cars, and that word should be read, coexist, coexist. The idea here is that all religions should be able to get along with one another. We can coexist. Um, as we press into that message a little bit, we, we might find ourselves as Christians you know, asking some questions. Uh, should all religions be able to get along in a particular community or nation? I mean, the answer to that is absolutely yes, we, we should. Should people be able to freely worship whatever God they believe in, in whatever land they live in? The answer is, is yes. Should anyone be forced to convert to a religion? Should anyone be coerced to adopt a belief system that they don't actually believe in? And the answer to that is, is no, that should never happen. I mean, sadly, of course, it does happen in many areas of the world today. It has happened in the past, and the Christian church has been guilty of that in the past. But no one should be forced to convert against his or her will. At the same time, are we saying that all religions are equally true? Are we saying that all religions worship the same God? And the answer to those two questions is no. And I don't know what everybody means when they put this bumper sticker on the back of their cars, but if they mean all religions should be able to get along, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. If they mean all religions are basically the same and we're all worshiping the same God, I say no. No, we don't. And the book of Zephaniah addresses this, and, and I'll show you how here in just a second. Zephaniah, <clears throat> the author of the book, uh, we don't know a lot about Zephaniah as an individual. We believe that he wrote this book between 639 and 609 BC. He wrote during the reign of Josiah, uh, who was one of the very few godly kings in Judah. Josiah was the one who took the throne at eight years old, you might remember. Zephaniah preached during his reign. Significant events, well, there's repeated mentions in Zephaniah of this thing called the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord. Uh, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Themes of the book, this, God is the judge of the whole earth and intends to bless all the nations of the earth. In other words, God is not a, what some people call a tribal deity. He's not a God who simply reigns over one particular tribe of people. This is a God who is God of the entire earth, all the world. And that has very significant implications for us as we consider this issue of world religions and how we coexist with them. So I'm going to read from chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. This is the very end of the book. 
Uh, if you want to please stand, if you're able to stand, please do so, and I'll read these passages. And <clears throat> um, The book is short enough, just three chapters, that we can give a broad overview of the entire book, so we'll eventually get to these verses, but let me just read them to begin with. Zephaniah 3, verse 9. For at that time, God says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall gaze, graze, and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. God, by your spirit, would you open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we're going to go through this again. Uh, all three chapters here, just brief overviews of all three chapters. A lot of detail here we won't be able to explore, but um, one chapter at a time. First chapter will tell us this, that there will be judgment for God's people. And this will have implications, as you're going to see here, uh, for this question of how we relate with, with world religions. There will be judgment for God's people. So if you look at verse 7, we're just in chapter 1 here. If you look at verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, it says. The day of the Lord. Now that's a common, repeated phrase in chapter 1. Shows up uh, many times. Verse 9, on that day. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord. Verse 15, a day of wrath. Verse 16, a day of trumpet blast. All of this is referring to a coming day of judgment. And in chapter 1, the context is judgment upon God's people, and in particular, Judah. Now, again, remember, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. But whenever you see Israel or Judah, it's both referring to God's people. It's both referring to Israel, so to speak. But when I say Judah, we're talking about a portion of Israel, a portion of God's people. So, 
This day of the Lord is coming. It's a day of judgment. One of the unique features, if there's any unique feature of Zephaniah, it's that the pronouncements of judgment are very intense in Zephaniah. They're, they're more severe even than many of the previous prophets. Verses 14 to 16, you can see this. Verse 15, start with. A day of wrath is that day. It's a day of distress, and anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness. It's a very vivid, very severe, very kind of spined, tingling description of the devastation that is coming. You've probably seen some of the pictures of the devastation of Hurricane Dorian down in Bermuda. Um, it, it's just miles and miles of just rubble, just heaps of rubble, buildings and neighborhoods just completely devastated and ruined. Um, when I read this passage, that's what the image that, that came to mind. This is perhaps what Zephaniah has in mind. This is going to happen to God's people, this kind of devastation. So why is it that God is so angry? What is this judgment for? And in various places throughout Zephaniah, we're given the reason. Here's one of the first reasons. Materialism. God is angry at Judah's materialism. Look at verse 18, chapter 1. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. So apparently Judah have been putting their heart, resting their heart in their materialism, in their finances, in, in their money. Now there's nothing wrong with money. Most of us have some amount of money. There's nothing wrong even with being rich. Notice the issue here is that they're trusting in their silver and gold to deliver them on the day of wrath. These people somehow are thinking that if I have enough money that the judgment of God will escape me somehow. And maybe some people think that today. I'm wealthy, so I'll be fined on Judgment Day. Well, your riches and your wealth will do nothing for you on Judgment Day. And that's what Zephaniah is bringing out here. God is angry at their materialism, but he's also angry at their rebellion. We've got to part from chapter 1. Go to chapter 3 with me. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> this is also referring to Judah. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no cor correction. She does not trust in the Lord and does not draw near to her God. This is referring to Judah. So, you know, it's one thing to sin. We, we all sin. It's very common to fall into sin. And that's a serious thing, but it's even more serious if when you sin and you are corrected, you reject that correction. God sends somebody to you to challenge you or admonish you, and you will not listen. That's what Zephaniah is describing here about Judah. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She thinks she knows everything. She's going to do it her way and will not be challenged. That's described here as rebellion, and it makes God very angry. So that's a reason why he's judging. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, here's a third reason for God's judgment on his people. It's idolatry. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. Uh, let's start in verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests 
those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. See what he's pointing out here. God's people, Judah, are worshiping other gods. They're worshiping the remnant of Baal. Even the priests at the end of verse 4 here are idolatrous. The priests who are supposed to be leading Judah in the worship of the one true God are leading them to worship other gods. They bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens. That's referring to the star and the sun and the moon. God's people worshiping the star and the sun and the moon. I mean, where do you think they got that idea? I mean, God certainly never commanded them to worship the star and the sun, stars and the sun and the moon. God, God said, I'm the creator of the stars and the sun and the moon. Where did they possibly get that idea? And the only answer to that is they got that idea because they looked at the way other nations practiced their religions. And they said, I like that. I like the idea of worshiping the stars and the sun and the moon. I'm going to do that too. And they even started worshiping this deity called Milcom in verse 5. Milcom, that is also translated as Molech. Maybe you've recognized that word. It's a little more commonly translated as Molech. This was the god of the Ammonites. And what Zephaniah here is saying, look very carefully here at verse 5. Five, they swear by Milcom, but just look at the passage before that. They bow down and swear to the Lord. They swear to the Lord and also by Milcom. So they're not saying, God of Israel, Yahweh, we don't want you anymore. We're going to worship Milcom. They're saying, yeah, God, we'll worship you, but we want to worship Milcom too. And we want to worship the sun, star, stars, and, and the moon. They, they, they want it all. They want to bring all kinds of religious preferences into their practice. They want to be pluralists. Perhaps we could say in some degree they want to coexist with all of these other religious preferences. Now why would this make God so angry? And the reason is this, you got to remember as we're going through the minor prophets, that each of these prophets fits within the broad sweep of the whole biblical story. And remember, the story started with God creating Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve came the entire human race. And when Adam and Eve sinned, sin infected the entire human race. The whole world fell in the sin of Adam and Eve. And when God then came to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he said, Abraham, from you I'm going to build a nation called Israel. Do you remember what he said about what's going to happen? From Israel, who's going to be blessed? Just the Israelites? All nations will be blessed, God said. I'm raising you up, Israel, to bless all the nations. God's intent always when he chose Israel to be his people was for the sake of the world. A guy named uh, Michael Goheen says this, God's choice of Israel is put in this universal context because the whole earth is mine, God says. For this reason, God chose Israel. The whole earth belongs to him, and God has taken it back. It was lost in the fall, but God has taken it back. He's choosing one nation for that purpose, but it's a particular nation for a universal goal. And the problem here with Israel is they keep acting like the nations, and they keep doing the things that the nations want to do. They adopt their materialistic attitudes, they adopt their rebellious attitudes, and they adopt the gods that they serve. And that makes God really angry. 
Because what God says to them is you're not to be like the nations. You're to be a light to the nations. You're not supposed to go to other nations and find the the truth in their religions and gather their religious practices into yours. No, you're supposed to go to them and tell them the truth about the one true God. God says, I want all the world to know me as the one true God. And that's your responsibility, Israel. And the same responsibility exists for us as the church today. We are called to proclaim the one way of salvation through the one Savior given by God to humanity. That's our charge. There's an incident that happened in our history years ago, Presbyterian history, about 100 years ago, that uh, some people in the Presbyterian church, they decided that proclaiming Jesus to other nations wasn't really so important anymore. And they said, what we really need to do is just go over to other nations and and uh, bring them medical help and and help the poor and um, engage in various humanitarian tasks to help these other nations. But this idea of proclaiming Jesus to them and expecting them to believe in Jesus to be saved, that's passe, that's something in the past. One person said that's superstitious. And a guy named Jay Gresham Machen, uh, just one of my, my heroes in the faith, Jay Gresham Machen, just recoiled at that, rebelled against that, and said that's, that, that's not what missions is for. Missions is for the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. And so he, he wrote this in his book, Christianity and, and Liberalism, very famous book, which I highly recommend to you. He says, what struck the early observers of Christianity most forcibly was not merely that salvation was offered by means of the Christian gospel, but that all other means were absolutely rejected. Christianity demanded an absolutely exclusive devotion. Salvation, in other words, was not merely through Christ, but it was only through Christ. I mean, do you, do you believe that? I mean, that's what the scriptures seem to be teaching here. The Bible tells us there is one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. One mediator. There's only one way of being saved. That should profoundly influence the way we look at the world, the way we look at the millions of people practicing other religions. I know the temptation is to say they're sweet people, they're good people, they're nice people, they're loving people, they're doing the best they can. I know that. But the scripture says there's, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says. We can't get out from under that. The reason there is judgment for God's people in the book of Zephaniah here is because they've lost sight of that. And they're gathering in all of these other religious practices and they forgot that they were called to be a light to the nations, not to be like the nations. So second point we see is this. There will be judgment, not just for God's people, but for the whole world. And that's what Zephaniah says in chapter 2. Chapter 2, it's a shift from the focus on Judah to a focus on the whole world. So verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his command. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. There's that phrase again, the day of the Lord that's coming. But this time it's not coming for Judah. This time it's coming for all these other nations. And so 
They're, they're listed here. Verse 5, it's the Philistines who are listed. I guess my translation here says the nation of the Cherethites, the Philistines in verse 5. Verse 8, there's a reference to Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. Verse 12, he talks about you Cushites shall be slain by my sword. Cushites is a reference to an African nation, probably Ethiopia today. Ethiopia didn't exist then, but it's that area of the world where Ethiopia, Ethiopia is today. Uh, and then verse 13, I will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and make Nineveh a desolation. We've heard a lot about Nineveh, right, in the book of Jonah. In particular, Nineveh, a capital of Assyria. And so here's what we see. If you look at this map, what Zephaniah is, is listing here are the nations that surround Israel. This is Philistia or the Philistines. Well, first of all, here's Israel, here's Judah. So here's God's people. To the west is the Philistines. To the east is Ammon and Moab. To the north is Assyria and Nineveh. And to the south, would be way down here somewhere in the corner, that would be the Cushites, the Ethiopians. And so here's God's people surrounded by all of these nations. And here's what struck me as I was reading chapter 2. All of these nations, isn't it likely to assume that all of these nations were all worshiping their own gods? You know, the Philistines were you know, doing their best for Dagon, their god. And the Ammonites were teaching their kids about Milcom. And the Assyrians were rendering service to Ashur, their god. That they were all giving themselves in service to those gods as best as they can. They had their gods and they worshiped and they served those gods. But according to Zephaniah, none of these people are to give account to any of those gods. They're all accountable to Israel's God. That's what Zephaniah says. Zephaniah doesn't seem to be concerned about how sincerely they're devoting themselves to these other gods. Look what he says in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish all the gods of the earth. The Dagons, the Ashurs, the Milcoms. God's going to famish them, starve them, wither them. And to him, to the God of Israel, shall bow down each in its place. All the lands of the nations. All the lands of the other nations who worship these other gods will bow down to the one true God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that there's one God and one God only. That's what Zephaniah is saying. James Boyce says this, the prophets did not care what gods or goddesses other nations worshipped. They were convinced of the truth that there is only one God, the God of Israel, and that all peoples must and will render account to him. Now today, of course, people don't worship Milcom or Ashur or Dagon, I, I don't think. <laughs> Maybe there are some pockets in the world where those gods are still worshipped, but, but people do worship Allah, and they do worship Buddha, and they do worship Brahman. People worship all kinds of gods. Zephaniah is talking about the nations of Philistia and Ammon and 
the Kushites, Assyria. Today we think of India and China and Indonesia. Those are the nations today, and they all got their own gods. What Zephaniah is saying, they're all accountable to the one true God. And I'm telling you today that I don't care what religion people are practicing, they're all accountable to Yahweh. They're all accountable to the God of the Bible. That's what the scriptures teach. I know there's troubling implications of this, but it's what the Bible is telling us. All religions, friends, they are not the same. They're not the same. Islam worships one God. Christians worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's very different than the Islamic idea of God. Islam does not like the idea of the Trinity. Don't tell a Muslim you worship the same God as a Christian. He or she will not like that because they know we worship a different God. Hindus believe in reincarnation after death. Christians believe in resurrection after death. Those are very different. Buddhists believe the goal of life should be the elimination of our desires because if we don't desire anything, we won't be disappointed by anything. But Christianity says no. In the gospel, there is the fulfillment of our desires as we enter into a relationship with our creator through Jesus Christ. They're diametrically opposed. Other religions, as they speak of salvation, they say, follow the five pillars of faith. Follow the eightfold path to enlightenment. Do these things. Work at these things. Render your service to God and hope that he'll be pleased with it. And Christianity says, no, that's not the way people are saved. It is through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not something we do. It's something that God did himself for us in the person of Jesus. That's different. It's diametrically opposed to what other religions teach. They're not the same. They're not the same. And what Zephaniah is telling us here is that there's going to be judgment for the whole world. Even people who devote themselves to their own gods will be accountable to the one true God. So the question still is, can we coexist? And having said all of that I just said there, can we coexist with people who hold to different religions? And the answer is yes, and we should seek that. You know, Paul in Romans 12 says, respect what is right in the eyes of all men. So don't hear me saying that we should disrespect other religions. I'm not saying that. The Bible says respect what they believe. Respect it. Respect them as people. They are image bearers of their creator, no matter what they believe. We should respect them. Paul also says live peaceably with everyone. We should seek as Christians to live in peace, in harmony with other people, no matter what they believe. And in fact, be prepared, Christian, that some people who practice other religions are actually more godly and more devoted than you are. Be prepared to acknowledge that. It's a humble admission, but it's true. Some people are more devoted to their false gods than we are devoted to our true God. If you work in a place and your boss is someone, a Muslim, obey your boss. As your earthly master, do what you can to bless that person as your earthly master. He or she is your boss. Do what they say. If you have a Hindu as a neighbor, love your neighbor, the Hindu. Invite the Hindu to your house. Help them when they need help. Defend them when they're being attacked. Be a good neighbor. Love them as your neighbor. 
If someone who practices another religion should hold public office, scriptures would say we should submit to the authorities that have been set over us, no matter what their religious practice is. In those ways, we coexist with these other religions, but we don't worship the same God. And that means you need to pray for these people, pray that God would open their eyes. That means you need to tell them about Jesus as God providentially allows, respectfully, kindly, lovingly, wisely. That means that we as a church should be passionate and devoted supporters of foreign missions in whatever form that they take through our denominational agency called MTW, through the missionaries that we support here, through crew and all of their efforts throughout the world. We should be eager and generous in support of our missionaries. And one question that you might want to ask as you consider this idea that there are people worshiping false gods and without hope aside from the gospel, if that resonates with your heart, maybe God is calling you to go, to take the gospel to those who don't know him. Could that be that you're called to be a full-time missionary overseas? Maybe God's asking you to consider that. There's going to be judgment for the whole world, and we need to get the gospel to the world. Here's the third point. In chapter 3, there will be, and, and, and here's where everything changes. Chapters 1 and 2 are severe and serious, and now it's like the clouds break. In, in chapter 3, there's just this, this beautiful picture of hope, and it tells us that there will be no judgment for those who call on the name of the Lord. No judgment for those who call on the name of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time, God says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that the peoples of the world that's referring to. Their speech will be made pure that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. Not just the people of Judah, all the peoples. That's what God has in mind. He wants all people to call on not Milcom and not Dagon and not Asher to call on the name of the Lord. That's Yahweh, the God of Israel. Call on that God. And what God will do for those who call upon the name of the Lord is given to us in verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. God will take away the judgment. The judgment that rightfully belongs on you for your rebellion for your materialism, for your idolatry, and the judgment that rightfully belongs on the world for their idolatry, it can be taken away. It can be removed. And how will this happen? Well, we know fully, don't we? Living on this side of the cross, we know that God has sent a Savior, that the Messiah came in the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus lived on this earth and when he died on the cross, he took upon himself God's judgment. God's judgment fell on him so it wouldn't have to fall on you and it wouldn't have to fall on Judah and it wouldn't have to fall on anybody throughout the world who would call on his name. That's the gospel. Anybody who calls on the name of this Savior will escape judgment. John 5, 24, Jesus says, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. But it's crossed over from death life. That's good news. That's the message we want to take to the world. 
That's the task of missions, is taking that message to the world. But you know what? That's not all, because it gets even better. It's one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. Isn't it interesting in these prophets how you have the most severe and depressing passages right next to the most encouraging and blessed passages? And that's what we get here in Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Look what is said here about the person who has called on the name of the Lord, the person who has come to faith in the one true God. It says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God delights to save people. It makes God ecstatically happy to save people. He is happy that you belong to him. I think we have to get rid of this idea that God is somehow reluctant to save or that when God saves, he does it with a frown or that when God saves, he would only do it because he has to or that what really God was wanting to do was condemn, but oh, because of what Jesus did, I guess I got to save these people. That's the way some of us think. Like, like God, like we're the member of the team that God wishes we would just go away. That's, that's not the picture we're given here, is it? If you're a Christian, God delights that you belong to him. He is so happy that you belong to him, he is singing a song over you. He can't, I shouldn't say he can't contain himself, but he just desires, he just breaks out in song. I mean, that's just the example of the person who's happiest, cannot contain himself or herself and sings a song of joy. What does it say in the New Testament? If uh, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 sinners who don't need to repent. That was from Corey's passage last week. Joy in heaven over one person who repents. Remember the story of the prodigal son. The kid comes back to his father, and the father says, get the fattened calf and bring it out, and let's celebrate, let's have a party. He was lost, and now he's found. And heaven is glad God loves to save, and he loves the people that he saves, and he delights in the people that he saves. One of the most wonderful pictures of this, some of you were there, and so you're going to know what, I, what I'm talking about. It was, I think it's been a couple summers ago now. It was at the wedding of Brad Huff and Jamie Carter. Some of you don't know them, some of you do. They were both on staff here, and they were married in this sanctuary, and we had the reception at the Carter's house, and Brad put Jamie in a chair and got a microphone and sang a song to her, a song that he had written, a song of delight, a song of love, a song of joy to his bride. I think every woman was looking at Jamie and envying what Brad was doing, and every husband was thinking, Brad, you're making us all look awful here. But it was a beautiful picture of a husband singing for delight over his bride. And look what it says in Isaiah 62. It says, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you think God is reluctant to love you? Do you think God is against you? Do you think God wishes you would go away? Put those thoughts out of your mind. God delights 
in you because your sins have been paid for by his son and you belong to him. So when we ask this question, you know, sometimes people will say, why you Christians have to go and impose your message on other people and force these people to believe? We don't want to force anybody to believe anything. We don't want to impose our message on anybody. That's, that's not the idea. We just think we have the greatest message that the world has ever heard. We just think that this is the best news that anybody could hear. Why wouldn't we want to share this? Why wouldn't we want to take this to all the world? To tell people that there is one true God, but this is a God who delights to save those who turn to him. That's the gospel. Let us proclaim it without hesitation. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for encouraging our hearts. Thank you that we can know you delight in us. And now, Lord, we respond by delighting in you for your love and grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray.